Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I'm Alan Lockie. I'm head of the RSA's Future Work Centre, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to today's online event, where I'm delighted to have the chance to talk this afternoon to two of the most interesting thinkers in the world, really, on the future of work. Uh, a debate which, in the context of, I think, 97% of businesses in the UK, at least, seeing significant restructuring during the pandemic feels ever more vital. Uh, I'm joined today by Carl Frey, who is an influential analyst of the past, present and future of work. Uh, his book, uh, The Technology Trap, explores the history of past technological revolutions and in particular the focus uh, focuses on automation. Uh, and we, of course, he, alongside Michael Osborne, was responsible for the statistic really of 47% of US jobs maybe being at vulnerable to, to high risk to automation, which really, really uh, punched through and hit policymakers in a way that I don't think the future of work debate had to that point. So we're all very, very grateful for that research. Uh, I'm also joined by Letitia Vital, who we are always delighted to welcome to an RSA Future Work platform because her work and writing so vividly captures the human experience and condition even as it relates to work. She is co-director of Welcome to the Jungle, a media and tech company that is looking uh, exactly into that to make work more human. And her books include From Labour to Work and Welcome to the Jungle, 100 Ideas to Recruit and Grow Talent. A little plug before we uh, begin our conversation. Uh, yesterday, uh, myself and my colleague Fabian Wallace-Stevens launched uh, the RSA's report uh, on what the, how the future of work uh, might evolve in the pandemic. It's called uh, a blueprint for good work, eight ideas for a new social contract. Uh, and in that, we are really looking to push policies that the RSA has always been, been or for a long time at least, been very, very uh, favourable towards, such as universal basic income. But from a pandemic perspective, we are perhaps calling explicitly for new models of worker democracy, voice and collective bargaining, a revigoration of old ones too. So when you look at the social contracts, at least in the UK, I think we see a lack of union involvement and worker voice organisations as a systemic break on good work. And maybe we are starting to see some change there. Maybe the pandemic catalyzes things in a helpful direction there. So perhaps we'll come on to that later in the debate. But uh, uh, for the most part, I think we'll focus more explicitly uh, on the pandemic and what it means for the future of work. So to kick off and I think I'll I'll come to Letitia first because you have this wonderful phrase in in, in an article that you wrote uh, about the pand pandemic uh, that it turns out that anxiety acute stress and the collapse of the economy do not help to foster a sense of perspective uh, which you then went on to undermine by putting forward this fantastic article which went into depth of the human experience of the pandemic and how it affects work so could you maybe sketch out a little bit how you see the pandemic's impact on the future of work and what it changes and what it uh, and what we are now leaving behind. Yes, um, thank you, Alan, uh, for inviting me in for, and to, to speak today. I'm very happy. Um, the, the pandemic has not really changed anybody's thinking on the future of work. That's what's uh, really funny. And we're seeing, we're, we're seeing a massive problem of confirmation bias that everyone sees in the pandemic exactly what it is that they want to see. 
And so I'm, I don't know whether I'm falling prey to the same confirmation bias and see in the pandemic exactly what I want to see in it, or if it's actually because it's a accelerated trends and transformations that had already started before the pandemic. And these, um, these transformations include obviously the digital transition. They include a higher or a bigger role of the domestic sphere in, as a workplace, as a place of production and everything that it involves. Um, the rise of remote work and increasing or growing inequalities in general and growing inequalities between those who can work remotely and those who can't. Um, so these are some of the trends that I see as, uh, you know, the, the main things that are uh, shown by the, by the pandemic. And, and Carl, what, what's your reflection on the pandemic? You've obviously written a lot about automation uh, and, you know, how technolo uh, technology changes in, in moments of either profound uh, industrial change or, or, or profound crisis. Uh, do you have any reflections as as what the pandemic might change? Yeah, I think I broadly agree that the pandemic is mainly going to um, accelerate pre-existing trends in technology. I do think though that there are some sort of behaviors that are or have been radically changed. So travel, for example, is clearly one. Leisure hospitality activities, people no longer going to restaurants. These were not trends that were sort of pre pandemic and I think it's unlikely that people are going to travel as normal to go to restaurants as normal and um, actually before we have a vaccine so that is something that's been fundamentally changed uh, by this and I think when when it comes to automation obviously automation has happened for the past 200 years or so uh, but it's often come in spurts and it's often come in spurts during actually downturns and something that we see quite clearly during the Great Recession is that many of these routine rule-based repetitive jobs that are easy to automate, disappeared very rapidly as businesses began to cut costs. Um, and they really never come back. And the, um, the regions and uh, cities that were most affected by this haven't really uh, recovered since then. Um, so that is um, a big problem and something that has been exacerbated by the pandemic. Uh, secondly, what we tend to see during economic downturns and the IMF predicts that the global economy is going to shrink by 3% this year. So it's really a very significant downturn. Um, what, what tends to happen is that consumers shift towards more, uh, towards cheaper goods and services. And those goods and services tend to be produced using less labor. So if people go, for example, to McDonald's or if they uh, do home delivery instead of going to fancy restaurants, which is clearly something that is happening now, not just because it's cheaper. And that sort of increases the level of automation overall in the economy. And it's something that we're likely to see persist for some time because the pandemic is likely to have lasting uh, effects on the economy. Thirdly, uh, what we do see is that at a time of social distancing or physical distancing, as uh, I should say, and we're actually still socializing, but we're doing that uh, <laughs> digitally instead, um, robots are quite important in terms of allowing people to maintain social distancing. So we see delivery robots being increasingly used in hospitals, for example. We are seeing that warehouses are accelerating automation due to concerns of uh, those becoming overcrowded places. 
Um, and FedEx is sort of experimenting with delivery robots now that can climb stairs. So there's actually sort of a bit of um, innovation going on in that particular domain um, as well. Um, and obviously, uh, the trend towards more remote work uh, existed previously as well, but it wasn't nearly as pervasive as you might think. If you look across the European Union as a whole, uh, remote work has been sort of increasing, but not much for the past 20 years or so. In certain places like Finland, the Netherlands has been increasing quite rapidly. Um, and I think that you know this is clearly something that's going to be accelerated uh, by this. People are going to work uh, from home more. But I don't see sort of this trend of people moving out of cities and you know people are still going to want to go back to their offices. People are still uh, you know, going to want to interact socially. Innovation is still driven by a lot of spontaneous interactions in cities that is not going to go away. So the world is not going to change completely, but some of the trends that we have already been seeing for some time are clearly going to be accelerated by this. And I thought there was something interesting there in both of your responses about kind of the unequal effects about how the pandemic is playing out in terms of some workers and uh, home workers versus non-home workers. And you know, we've done some research which which shows that you know the ability to home work is incredibly correlated to earnings. And so, you know, taking Letitia's analysis and also adding it to your automation analysis, Carl, is there this kind of dynamic where some of the workers that have been most uh, crucial to getting us through the, the pandemic, if you think about you know, workers in distribution centers, are also those who might be most vulnerable to being displaced as we go beyond uh, and escape the kind of the, the short-term effects? Yes, it's, 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 uh, there's a sort of, during the, the lockdown, there was a kind of reversal um, where as the most essential workers or the workers deemed most essential were those who were outside, who could not work from home, and those who usually were the least paid or are the least paid. And uh, the others um, who could work from home had a few weeks of, you know, feeling like, do I even need to work? Um, is there anything I can do that can make a difference? And, and this, this, this discrepancy, this, this huge gap between essential and non-essential workers or between people who can work from home and people who can't was made absolutely dramatic during the first few weeks of confinement. And it kind of gave, it kind of made anthropologist David Graeber's concept of bullshit jobs incredibly topical and relevant it seems like it seemed like um you know there's a he says that there's this general rule that the more obviously your work benefits other people the less you are likely to be paid for it and that was ironically or cruelly made obvious even on the subject of recognition that everybody in the evening at 8 p.m. 8 p.m. went outside to you know applaud the NHS and other and all care workers and say thank you but it's a thank you that was made with you know uh, just words uh, maybe even empty words and there's no doubt that people meant it and that it's a good thing that they um, that they show that they show appreciation and that they're genuinely attached to it but on the other hand it's made it very obvious that 
that the recognition is not material recognition that it's um that it's deemed you know you do it for the sake of others you don't do it for your own sake and it's um it's led economist mariana matsukata to call it an insult which i think it's a bit is a bit exaggerated but she said it's an insult to applaud the nhs without strengthening it without um, you know, reinforcing it without changing the conditions of work, without questioning the value that these workers bring to society. And I think that as far as care work in particular is concerned, and that was made obvious during uh, the, early, uh, the early phase of the pandemic, there are questions that will have to be answered in the near future because, and it's probably a subject that's even more acute, more problematic in the UK than anywhere else in the, in the OECD, except for the US, uh, which is in a deeper mess than uh, even than the UK. Um, because, yeah, care workers, we're going to need more of them as, you know, the baby boom generation is reaching, you know, the, the 80 years old, and more of them will be dependent and more of them will, be, will need care workers at home there's the subject of how are we going to recruit them after a hard Brexit when the EU workers that you know the UK was so dependent on will be harder to harder to recruit, harder to get. There's the question of um, 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 the fact that the, the the system, the whole system, has shown its weaknesses, um, and that there were you know more deaths in the UK than anywhere else in Europe. And I think it's the second highest of the highest number of deaths per capita after Belgium. I don't know why Belgium's doing so badly, but you know, I think, we, UK, I think we've overtaken Belgium now. <laughs> these, maybe, it's difficult to compare some of these yeah. data points. It's also because some of those figures are not completely reliable. But one thing is certain is that there is a problem and that there are questions that will have to be solved. So there, it's like it concerns the future of work because we know that we'll need more of these workers. These jobs are harder to automate and, and are badly paid and badly valued. And in the context of all the challenges that are coming ahead, um, you know, geopolitical challenges and, and Brexit and, um, and recruitment and all of that and the aging of, you know, the baby boom generation and all of that. These are questions that we'll have to, you know, we'll have to answer very, very quickly. And hopefully the pandemic can help accelerate uh, the process of answering those questions. Carl, yeah. oh, would you like to come in? Yeah, I, I, I broadly agree with that. I think what our study shows is that the, the jobs that can be done remotely tend also to be high income jobs. So in the financial sector, for example, 80% of jobs can be done from home, according to our estimate. In leisure and hospitality, it's around 10%. Yeah. Uh, so there are huge sort of disparities in people's ability. Um, to work from home and that tends to be highly correlated with people's incomes and in addition to that most people in high income jobs tend to have more pleasant homes tend to have a house tend to have a garden uh, a lot of people in low income jobs don't want to work from home because uh, you know it's nice to get out uh, mm -hmm. sometimes um, during the day so that is something that we have to um, I think take into um, account as well um, and I think also it's important to note, as Leticia mentioned, many of the jobs in care, for example, have not been uh, valued maybe as they should, uh, or definitely haven't been valued as they should. 
you say? But they're also public sector uh, jobs. So if we were serious about addressing this issue, uh, we should be able to do something about it. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in, in a bit of a tension, I think, that, that, that comes through in your work, Carl, but maybe relates to, to both the report we put out and some of the stuff that Letitia has been writing about as well, in that, you know, to a certain extent, some of the policies we're, we're, we're pushing and, and some of the, you know, the, the re-energizing of collective bargaining or, or, or the exploration of uh, structures such as uh, works councils, they, they are a sense of trying to manage um, technology and almost slow down the pace of technology's impact upon the labor market to reduce the impact of, uh, of what you call labor displacement. Uh, and try and make it a bit more labour enabling, but you know there's also this idea in your writing of, of of a trap where in the in the long run that might be um, actually damaging to to long term uh, productivity or it, there, there is a something to balance there. And you know I think I was struck when I've read when I've engaged with your book that that uh, one of the reasons why the UK went so far, far ahead was that they were so authoritarian in repressing um, those forces, at least in the 18th and, and, and early 19th century. So how do we balance these two objectives in, in trying to enable the productivity boosting of tech in the long run, whilst also maintaining some of the human sides of work that we, we, we want to encourage? Yeah, I think balance is the key word here, as you say. It's a narrow corridor, as Darren Asimoglu and Jim Robinson would have put it. Because on the one hand, you don't want unions to be too powerful so they can block the introduction of new technologies. What you see in Argentina, for example, is that there are very few railroads. One reason for that is that the lorry unions are extremely strong and they have no interest in competition. And on the other hand, what you do see is that in Germany, for example, where you have work councils, it is not leading to lower levels of investment. It is not leading to slower adoption uh, of robots, and it's leading to stable, more stable worker-employer relations, which are actually very helpful uh, in dealing with automation. And I think it's broadly speaking important to distinguish between two sources of tensions that exist in the economy. One is the sort of Marxist tension, if you like, between capital and labor, the one you alluded to. And we have seen that the labor share of income has been falling for about three to four decades now, and that is an issue. The second tension is the Schumpeterian tension, it's the tension between the new and the old, and it's a tension that only can be put uh, to rest through stagnation, which is something that we don't want. And, and what we've seen over the past couple of decades also is a rise in spending on corporate lobbying, um, a decline in the power of labor unions, uh, back in the day when people in the Chicago school was writing, um, they, um, uh, at the time, you know, if an industry had excess profits, you would see entry into that industry that would compete away those profits. And as a result of that, they were quite lax about um, uh, antitrust and they were broadly right at the time. Uh, these days, we don't see that. We don't see entry to the same extent. And I think we need to be very concerned about these barriers to entry because what happens to every business and industry is that after a time, you know, when it has expanded, it's grown its sales, the only way in which it can increase profitability mm. or productivity is by introducing labor-saving technology, automation, or offshore production. And after it has done that, 
the only way it can remain profitable is actually by spending on lobbying and barriers to entry that sort of allows it to preserve uh, those profits. And businesses are doing that uh, to a growing extent that we know that businesses with more political con uh, connections are less likely to innovate, to create new products, to create new industries that can absorb the new labor. So I think there are two aspects that we need to deal with. Uh, one is sort of a rebalancing between um, capital and labor in the sense that unions have been deteriorating almost across the board in Sweden. They're still sort of relatively strong with over 80% of co uh, coverage relative to 11% in the US. So there are big differences, but the broader trend is that unions have been in decline and the broad trend is that businesses are spending more on lobbying. And one way is to, of dealing with that is to try to reduce money in politics. Another is by boosting uh, labor bargaining power. And I think we uh, should do both not just in the interest of you know, the uh, diminishing labor share of income and workers' wages, but also uh, to make sure that businesses are not able to block entry. Um, and I think the sort of a very worrying trend has been the uh, reduction in dynamism, the reduction in the number of firms that are entering into um, new industries, uh, which has taken place for three decades now. Thank you. And Letitia, something that comes through very clear in your writing about the pandemic so far uh, is the, the 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 gendered angle uh, to some of the trends and some of the things that we have seen happen already. Um, you know, whether it's the kind yeah. of cognitive load between balancing childcare uh, uh, and work, or or, or or even actually the the, the impact the potential impact uh, on automation long term. You've said that it's um, this could be a disaster for feminism. Um, would you like to explain to, to our audience why you, you feel so strongly on that? Yeah. Well, just a few examples. In academia, we have a few figures already about the number of uh, research papers submitted by researchers and the papers submitted by female researchers dropped by something like 70%, while the number of research papers submitted by male researchers has remained the same or even has had a sort of uptick, uh, which is a clear uh, illustration of how unequally domestic chores are distributed in, our, in households. And um, as soon as you know, female workers are mothers, uh, they have like this, this, these, this, you know, this, this, these burdens that are absolutely insurmountable. And it, it was, and it was possible to externalize some of those tasks, you know, with schools and various services. And with the pandemic and the, and the lockdown, suddenly everything had to be re-internalized inside the domestic sphere. And when it was re-internalized, it was re-internalized in a way that was less balanced um, and, and or probably as primitive as you can as you can imagine and with you know well gender inequalities that are very very severe and because it's going on for very long it's been three months already and schools have not fully reopened everywhere and and many children are still at home or parents sometimes make the decision to keep them with them for a few more months that's four, five, six months of a career, uh, and it might have an impact for a decade on, women, on women's incomes. And even those who work from home, who in theory have 
enough flexibility to handle everything, they find it incredibly difficult. Even when they are the main breadwinners, uh, which does happen once in a while, they have more chores than uh, their uh, spouse or, or, or partner, whoever that is. And so that's um, that's something that's going to that's that they're they're going to they're, sorry they're going to have to pay the consequences for a very very long time and in fact the fact that the domestic sphere is fully a part of the workplace has many consequences for men and women obviously but also because it shows you know there used to be the separation between reproductive work that was performed at home by women and you know with the industrial revolution you could separate the domestic sphere and you had the productive sphere that was the factory and then later on the offices and that made things very clear and now that everything's um bundled together again or intertwined again uh we're we have more domestic workers we have more people who work from home we have more elderly people who stay at home more uh freelancers and self-employed who choose to work from home and that means yeah, that means lots of different things for lots of different people, but women in particular, uh, yeah, uh, it means that in terms of policy, we'll have to think of what the gender impact is of, uh, of everything that is done on future of work related issues. Seems like we're um, developing a bit of a running theme here where we're, we're sort of saying that existing disadvantages <laughs> Uh, and you know structures of discrimination or whatever are only likely to be increased uh, by the pandemic. Uh, so maybe to try and move on a slightly more positive uh, train of thought. I mean, it, it feels too soon to 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 to, to maybe say that, that there are opportunities in, in this, given the amount of lives lost and and so forth. But you know, we do have a hope at the RSA that policies that have seemed way beyond um, the imagination of, of, of policymakers in the political uh, debate might get uh, a new chance, a new airing, and a new audience. Um, something we're really, really passionate about is, is universal basic income. Um, and we talked already a little bit about some of the opportunities to rethink social care, which, you know, at least as far as I'm concerned, is, is, is the number one policy challenge in the, in, in the UK context. And has been for for nearly two decades now. Um, I mean, are you hopeful in any sense that, that that we might push some 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 new solutions to this? And if so, what are they? Um, I think I'll go to Carl first, and then come to you, Letitia. Yeah, I think I'm hopeful in two ways. One is that you know this has been a great experiment of or great sort of episode of forced experimentation, if you like, and. Uh, some colleagues here at Oxford did a study a couple of years ago when they looked at um, uh, the London uh, underground uh, strike and people's commuting patterns. And what they found is that when sudden lines were closed down, people were obviously forced um, to, to, to change their commuting patterns. And the minority, roughly 5%, they actually stuck to the new patterns of commuting. Um, and they, every day, you know, reduce their commuting time. So over the long run, it turned out that, you know, this was uh, beneficial 
uh, thing because the long run uh, benefits outweigh the costs. Now, I don't think that this pandemic will uh, be turned out that positively in the sense that I do think the cost of this has been immense. But there are clearly businesses that are going to experiment with remote work, find more productive, uh, efficient way of doing things. And, and I think that that is one good thing that is going to hopefully come out of this. Secondly, and as you mentioned, yeah, universal basic income is something that I would support as well if we take the U out of the UBI, so something like a basic income, a negative income tax that is not received by everyone, but the ones who actually need it, is something uh, that I would support. And I uh, suspect that support for that um, has gone up since the pandemic. Yeah, I agree fully with that. Uh, to go back to the theme of gender inequalities, paradoxically enough, I, I do think there is something positive that happened during uh, the pandemic, and that is that the role of fathers uh, was very, very increased during this uh, crisis. We're more men at home looking after their children. Those of them who had a spouse on the front line working with the NHS, for example, became the number, parent number one and, and looked after their children uh, all day long. And, and some men, it's the case in Japan, for example, where you know, usually men who work in corporations, they work from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. and there's no way they can be involved in you know, the household and looking after their children. And so um, there are millions of men who spent, who had a, a way, in a way a forced paternity leave and that will increase their involvement in that relationship in the future and it's it could be compared to you know the entry of millions of women into the workforce during world war ii when women worked in factories well all of a sudden you had lots of men involved in the domestic sphere and doing things that they weren't used to doing before in terms of policy there is momentum uh, on the subject of paternity leaves. Uh, um, and in particular, in France, for example, there is a very strong movement to support equal parental leaves uh, between parent number one and parent number two, usually uh, woman and man. And so that's, that's something positive that could be discussed. It's, it's not exactly universal. It's, it's uh, my belief, it's paternal involvement. That's really the key here for more equality in the future. Um, I'm also positive about, like Carl, about remote work becoming more of a norm in lots of corporations as far as white collar jobs are concerned. I think it will accelerate a transformation, a managerial transformations that are um, very positive, that can make people's lives easier with you know, less commute, more flexibility, uh, less traffic, um, you know, things that can, better lives in general when you can balance your, your home life and your work life in, in a better way. Um, but for that, I think that it's not just universal basic income that's going to help, although I do, I do think it's a good idea, but I think we need housing policies because income without housing is not going to be, you know, of much help income without care is not going to be much help so if i would agree to speak about ubi if we include ubc universal basic care and ubh universal basic housing and in that case um yeah let's let's discuss uh let's discuss ubi 
I feel incredibly seen by that last response because my own experience of the pandemic has been to go back back home uh, and uh, spend much more time with my, uh, well, she's seven months now, but she was four or three months at the start of the crisis, uh, baby. And, and, and I think develop a relationship there that I perhaps might not have had the opportunity to were it not for lockdown. So it feels like maybe that the, 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 there is an opportunity and it will certainly change my thinking going, going uh, beyond this pandemic. Um, I think that, very sadly, is pretty much all we have time for now. So I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap up. And, you know, Letitia and Carl, many thanks for talking to us today and for sharing such rich and incisive insights into the changes we could uh, see emerging from the crisis and I think some of the really, really, really acute and scary challenges that we will face on the, on the uh, other side as well. Uh, if you're watching along today and don't already follow them both on Twitter, do check out their profiles on the RSA website where you can find links to their social media accounts and more info about how to get hold of their books and writings. Uh, on the site, you'll also find the Future Work Centre's new report, which I mentioned at the start, a blueprint for good work, as well as all the latest Bridges to the Future policy briefings and podcasts and stuff that we have been doing from the RSA uh, in, as part of our kind of rapid uh, response to the crisis and the pandemic. Um, and so finally, uh, if you want to get involved in, in our online conversation on the website, please use the hashtag, uh, hashtag RSA Bridges. And finally, uh, just to say thank you once again to Letitia and Carl. It's been an absolute pleasure from my perspective so much uh, we could talk thank you, about Alan. and keep thank you, going. Um, I wish we thank could you. keep on going. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.